hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Bow Hunter Chronicles podcast brought to you by Huntworth. Huntworth gear for all types of weather, all types of terrain, all types of budgets. It's clothing that just works. Check them out at huntworthgear.com. And right now they're running their holiday sale. Uh, you can get 25% off using code HLDY25. And until the 7th, they have select items 35% off. So you can get some amazing deals um, like the Matterhorn Heat Boost gear. Um, that stuff is extremely discounted. You can basically get um, the top and bottom uh, for the price of just one of those. So it's almost uh, buy one, get one free. And honestly, going through some of the stuff, that day pack, the Lodi day pack is great. And the muff, I mean, this muff is $18. If you're a saddle hunter, you know, unless you already have the heat boost stuff, like it's hard to get your hands in your pockets. What are you going to do with your hands? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, 18 bucks for uh, an extremely good muff. I mean, everybody wants to put their hands in the muff, right? Um, anyways, check that stuff out. You got till the 7th to get an additional 35% off some of that stuff. So get over there quickly to huntworthgear.com. Um, congratulations, Tim Clark, finally on the board with a bow um, shot. A gigantic doe. So congratulations to Tim. Um, lots of stuff going on over in our Patreon group. Uh, new Patreon, uh, I guess returning Patreon, uh, Jerry Casperson up in the UP. And I got to give a shout out to Jerry because he uh, was actually helping us. Uh, my brother was up in the UP while we were deer hunting in the morning. He was going out duck hunting with his son. 
and uh, they were able to get on some ducks and, and Jerry was kind of pointing us in the right direction. So uh, thanks again for that, Jerry. Um, this podcast is a great one. Uh, one of our good friends, Nick Otto, um, the hunt of war. If you're not checking out his podcast, you definitely should. Lots of recipes, wild game, all sorts of stuff. And Nick is very passionate about venison, about wild game and about um, field to table type fare. So uh, we talk about like what to do with all the venison that you've got, even if you just had it processed and you just have those like four cuts of like roast, backstrap, ground, and then some steaks. Like, what are we going to do with it? How are we going to deal with, uh, you know, maybe people that don't like venison, uh, the taste, how are we going to deal with that, enhance it, etc. cetera. Um, but we do got to give a shout out to our sponsors, you know, our partners, people that we work with, obviously Huntworth, um, Latitude, you can go over there and get 15% off um, their stuff. Their vapor line ropes are uh, tremendous in their sticks. Um, if they're still on sale, are probably the best value um, in like one of those high-end premium sticks right now. And they are uh, seriously incredible. Uh, 15% off. Uh, if if they still have their Black Friday uh, type sale going on that won't work but uh, it's cheaper than that uh, anyway uh, big shot targets if you notice they just bought delta mckenzie targets um, you can get 10 percent off over there um, using code bcp it's bhc for latitude spartan forge you can use code bowhunter to save 25 percent off there please do that if you're thinking about it it'll really help us out um, genesis 3d their tether tether button uh, has been the consensus in our group as like the number one um, accessory. It's not expensive. It's maybe not sexy, but man, is it extremely functional and it solves a problem. And if you're a Patreon, Austin just launched a code for 20% off. And if you're not a Patreon and you're thinking about ordering stuff, if 20% is more than $5, you might consider joining Patreon uh, for a chance to win some free stuff, support the show, and save some money, right? Um, Lucky Buck, Kanadi, Zinger, um, those guys are great. Their arrows are tremendous. Um, Lucky Buck, I mean, did you see that monster buck that my daughter killed? We would not be bringing home that kind of bone uh, without Lucky Buck. But in all seriousness, um, the amount of bucks that we've seen on that property and the quality of bucks has greatly improved since we started using the Lucky Buck up there. Uh, but we, all those guys give back they do giveaways you know we're coming up on one here so i mean a little bit of donation to the show gets you an opportunity to win some great stuff um through that and you can do that at patreon.com forward slash born chronicle podcast or uh check it out in our instagram uh, or on our website uh, you can click the link there but uh, we're building the community through marco polo um great group of guys lots of information lots of support and uh we would love to have you over there. So check that out. If not, you guys are going to love this show. Nick is a great guest. He's got an incredible uh, voice presence podcast. Like he's, he, And he approaches it. He's a teacher, so he approaches it from a, a teaching perspective. Um, really appreciate having him on. You guys are going to love this podcast, as always. Thanks for listening. Hey everybody, Adam back with another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast and uh, a good friend of mine here uh, with another podcast, Nick Otto from the Hunt of War podcast. Um, and today we're going to talk about uh, kind of everything, uh, what we always talk about uh, this time of year is like 
hopefully you're sitting on a pile of venison and you're like, what are we going to do? And so I want to get into kind of like the weeds of, of that sort of thing. Um, and kind of catch up with Nick because, uh, Nick bagged himself a really nice buck this year. And, uh, it's, you know, he, he and I share the same values is, uh, we like to shoot deer and we like to eat meat and, you know, and Nick, you know, where, where I've done it, um, not on my own. I, I feel like Nick almost prides himself on, I would call him maybe the roadkill King. Um, he, he really does enjoy, uh, scooping up. He does not see that carcass on the side of the road as like that poor deer, or he would have been a giant next year. He's like, that's a meal. And, uh, if, if the spoilage hasn't happened yet, we're, we're in. Um, so we're going to kind of cover all those bases here, uh, with our good friend, Nick. So how are you doing tonight? Adam, I am doing great. First off, thank you uh, for having me on the show again. I always, I just love sharing with guys that are, yes, in the same region. You know, I'm a little bit more uh, central. I'm just south of GR where you're going to hang out more on the Muskegon uh, side of things right there on the coast. Um, And yes, I appreciate uh, the intro there as the roadkill king. I may need to get myself a, a ratty looking I don't know, Burger King crown that I wear wear around as the roadkill king. Uh, As we speak, there is a yearling doe hanging up in my shop uh, that was picked up Friday. Uh, That was a fresh hit there. They're off 68th Street. I was able to uh, scoop her up, still warm, still malleable. Um, Great story about that one is that uh, I was in my work clothes. I'm a PE teacher by trade, so I'm in my athletic gear. I end up pulling up into a gravel pit, gutting it, getting to school, getting a chance to clean up, get myself a cup of coffee, and be at an IEP meeting to talk about uh, a student's goals for learning. And all this happened in 45 minutes. So that's uh, that's my claim to fame right now, is that I can go from roadside to professional in 45, in under an hour. <laughs> so... Uh, let's go back to earlier in the season where you, uh, you shot yourself. What you said was the first, uh, you know, tapable buck, um, that you said. So, um, it, take us through like the, the whole season, like up to that point, like, is this one that you named? Was this, uh, you know, Charlie backstraps or, uh, you know, uh, daggers or, you know, whatever the, the common name would be, or was this kind of like a random thing or, or how did this whole thing play out? Um, it, I tell you what, it, it is seasons coming together. It is, I tell you what, a culmination of a lot of things. I, because I've been busy, the boys have consumed a lot of my life. I got three young kids. And so like I can get out and practice shooting, um, we live on, we live on a, or next to my family's farm. Um, but at the same time, like to get out and like put food plots in is always tough because the land is, is designated for, for the, the front for, for farming there. I'm not going to take anything away from that operation to put in food plots. Are there little pockets that I can put in? Absolutely. And I just due to laziness, haven't done any of that. Um, but what I have enjoyed is not even putting out cameras, not even, I'll do my pre-scouting and I, I have really worked on historical data 
and really kind of like looking back at, at this is, has helped me out is I've either got some preset stuff or I have just some favorite locations, uh, on our farm where I've been able to get in at certain points of the year. And a section of, of my farm that kind of jets out into the cornfield, uh, it's real closed canopy. Uh, there, it does open up into some little pockets. So there's a lot of cover, uh, near it. So it goes like heavy cover into some open area into heavy cover. So it's just this mismatched area, this maze almost, and it really sets up an awesome staging area. I have had previous encounters, uh, with bucks here, sizable, sizable bucks that I would be super uh, thrilled to be able to take. Uh, I've also had uh, a couple doe interactions in there. In fact, I've taken, uh, actually I was 20 yards from the spot where I took uh, a big doe the year previous. So I just knew this area was rich in deer early in the season. Um, and in fact, it was the second weekend in, um, in October that I was able to, to have this happen. So it was really early on, uh, two does came in, uh, early, like five o'clock, really thinking that was going to be my, um, my window. And it just never, it never happened. They, they stayed out at 45. They were in the thick and cover. And by the time they got to like 30 yards, they were really into the briars and the prickers. And then finally they jetted off into the corn. And so it was like, I never even had a chance. So part of my night, I was or at least the early on part of my night, I was like, gosh, darn it. That was, that was it. Um, but I continued to sit there hoping, thinking something would happen. And right around seven o'clock, I have a doe come in and jet right underneath me. She is now nine yards from my, uh, from my platform, from my tree. And I'm like, oh, I'm real excited for, for this. So I'm beginning to spin myself around to give myself a chance. And I, then I start hearing, uh, this buck. I already hear him grunting and I'm like, wow, this is super early. But here I am, have this deer grunting. I can't quite see him yet. It's it's dark enough that I can't see real far into the timber. But I see his body start to emerge. And it's, you know, shoulders and head down. And it's dark enough that I can't see his antlers. Uh, so I pull up the range finder. It's got the clarifying lens on there. It's not magnified or nothing. But anyway, I pull that up. And it gave me a better look at what was coming towards me. I saw how broad he was, and I, you just saw this huge body, and I already got excited. But then when I lifted it up, I saw all white tines, and immediately I just knew, shooter. I haven't even counted them. I just know there was a lot of them. That's the buck that I'm going to take. And so all attention went off of the doe at this point now uh, to the buck. I begin to pivot because he's heading right towards her. I pick up one of my feet and my platform. Uh, this is what you get for having a cheap platform is it makes a squeak and that doe turned inside out and she bolted 30 yards, give or take 30 yards, 40 yards, whatever. She bolts away and heads off. Um, she's still in view, but she heads off towards the field, turns around and she is now scanning. She is trying to find where I'm at. But at that point I just said, well, forget her. I'm now focused on big dog here. I don't I have no, I have not named him. I have no history with this deer. I never even knew he was coming. I just knew that this was a big animal in front of me and I'm doing everything I can to just control myself, to make my body not start quaking, to keep my wits about me. And I, I think I did a really good job at that because then I had 
my my pin lights go out earlier. I didn't change the batteries on those. I um I was everything that had a battery was going out that night. I think it was the first cold snap. So I know my pin lights was out. My my headlamp was kind of freaking out a little bit. My rangefinder uh was on its last legs. So it was just like a combination of like you're going to have to work on the practice you put on in the summer. You're going to really have to work on your archery skill of guessing where to put that arrow, judging how far he is, because there's a lot of things not in your favor right now. And so I tried to really keep my wits, um, keep myself put together. And by doing that, I got that buck to come into 22 yards. That was the last range I got on him was 22. I drew back and I'm beginning to settle the housing on his body. And as I'm, as I've drawn back and I'm settling, I hear that doe that was 30, 40 yards away. She blows and jets out and I'm like, shoot. So I'm still now just squared up on this buck. And of course he picks his head up. I mean, ears attention to her. I'm beginning to squeeze my trigger. Well, then he turns and he looks back at me and, or he looks back at the, the tree that I'm at. He didn't look up. But then he begins to do 180 degrees. He's going back the way he came. He is getting out of here. That doe spooked him. So I held off of shooting. I knew he was going to move. This is not a good setup. He does 180. He swings from looking to my right. He swings now and he's back to my left. And I gave him enough time to come around to 180. Uh, He's now looking left and he begins to take that front foot forward. And that's when I knew I'm like, this is where the shot has to happen or it doesn't. I release the arrow. I hear a hard crack, but I also hear like that, the, the plunge on the inside of it. The buck takes off. He leaves my vision at like 50 yards because it's dark in that section of the woods there. And then I hear nothing. I don't hear crashing. I don't hear kicking. I don't hear blowing. I, I don't hear anything. He went 50 yards and literally disappeared from all existence, according to me in that tree. Took all my information in as much as I could. And then that's where I got on the horde with the fellas, like hit buck hit, buck hit. I can't say buck down. I'm I'm just saying, hey, buck hit. Uh trying to relay as much information I can. My legs are jello at this point. It's hard to even text because now my body's starting to just quake and quiver. All the adrenaline is coming up into that culmination. I'm feeling this pit in my, my stomach because I didn't see him drop. I didn't hear him crash. I didn't hear him jet off into the woods. Like it would literally was like he gets 50 yards and then to be continued. We do not know. Nine o'clock. All right. We're going to get buddies out at nine o'clock. That gives her a, or gives him an over an hour in order to just lay down and die. If he's still on his feet, let's find blood. Let's find arrow. And we'll assess, do we push forward or do we not push forward? I was trying to play this as safe as as I could. I had three buddies show up. Uh, Two buddies got there early, so I took them to the site. And they began to work it out. We're looking for blood. We're looking for arrow. We're not finding anything. This This is discouraging, to say the least. Another buddy shows up, so I run back with the gator, get the buddy. And at this point, two of my boys are like, uh, I'm, we're ready to go. They had flashlights. They had their headlamps. They had their boots on. And I'm like, fellas, we're not, we're not ready for you yet. We have nothing to follow. We have nothing to track. And even my wife was like, you're going to walk out of here without them? 
yes. <laughs> it's the worst move that I could do, but I was like, to save, I don't know anything. So I'm going to try to play this super safe. So me and the one buddy head out and we connect with the other two and the one, they, they come back a little bit. They had gone down this, this hill that we were next to. And we were thinking that that's possibly where he went. Um, so they're, they're down there. They cut, they said, wait there. So they come up. And so we greet the one buddy and I'm telling the whole story to him and the guys that had gone and and looked ahead. They said, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to keep looking? And I'm like, yeah, we got to find something. We're out here. I know it was a hit. I know it was a good hit. I can't tell you exactly where, but I know like that deer's hurting. We're going to find, you know, shit. We're going to find blood. We're going to find meat. We got to find something. They said, okay, okay. So we can track. Or do you want to just go walk up on him? Cause he's laying down over here <laughs> and we got down the hill. Um, just judging from my shot at later, he, it did come up high and then move forward. So he was still, he must've not been angled at a, a full broadside to me. He must've been at like, Oh, I don't know. And from instead of that 180, he must've done a 150 degree swing because I hit high, went through his spine and then it moved forward. I missed all the vite or excuse me, all the, the gut, but I went into a lung and just absolutely destroyed that and came out through his shoulder. Um, the reason we couldn't find any blood up until that point, like four feet from the deers when we found blood is my arrow had done a full pass through, but then the deer, when it brought, when it brought its uh, shoulder down, it cut my arrow in half. So I was left with that arrow sticking out the one side, plugging that hole. And so when he laid down, it moved it. And so then he just bled out all sitting right there underneath of him. Um, oh shoot. I lost the picture again. I've been holding onto this picture. Um, but we were able to re- recover him like 80 yards from where he was at. So once we got that, I was like, all right, I got to go get the boys. So we run back. I get the boys. Still two of them were very excited about being able to go on this track. Uh, the other one finally had a chance to hold on to, uh, the, the remote for himself, the youngest one. So he's like, now I'm watching my show. We're going to let this go on. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you're going to post this at all, but hopefully I can get that up there. That is my Michigan eight point. Yes. He's my wall hanger. I've got him at the taxidermist. I, I'm just so excited about this buck because it's one of those things like, I don't know. I went on stuff that I knew and I had to rely on my skill as opposed to, uh, uh, some sort of technology at that point, technology was failing me. Um, but at the same time, my patience and my, um, my forethought to think, let's take this slow. Let's not charge in there ahead of ahead of time. Uh, let's go through all the steps. Let's go through the process it really did pay off when it came to recovering that buck. And so, yeah, I'm very excited about that. The memories with the boys being able to help me recover him, drag him back. Um, the, the gutting process was awesome. I had my oldest holding a leg. I had my middle boy over next to one of my buddies because he was already gagging at the smell of just, just opening him up. Like all that experience was just so much fun. And so like, yeah, like when we put stuff on the wall, it's, it really is true. When you finally get something you put up on the wall, you relive that hunt. Um, I have the antlers from the taxidermist right now. A good buddy of mine is, um, 
doing the rest for me. He's like, well, you can hold on to the rack and while I'm, while I'm finishing this up, get with the tannery and all that. So it's been fun to just grab those, hang on to them and then just relive those moments, uh, over and over again. It's, it's really something special. So one of the things that you said with no trail cameras or anything like that was, you know, that's, that's something that like, I kind of go back and forth and it's interesting with you being like, hunting a spot that you know you kind of know well and um being private land where you have like some sort of controllable measures right to not have trail cameras and not go you know wait for the cell phone camera to ping and be like oh they're in there and all that stuff and not knowing that the deer was there um I have conversations with guys about that. And like that to me is the, some of the most fun. Um, and now, now granted our property in the UP, like I'm getting ready to have like a meeting with those guys. Um, but talking to the, to the one kid and saying, okay, well we just, after the first of the year, we need to get on like a zoom call and like kind of go over like plans for the year and like, you know, kind of like what, what we want to do. Um, and some of that involves more trail cameras, but it's seven hours away versus right behind your backyard. So I, I say this all, you know, we're kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth, I guess. But like, I think that there's nothing more exciting than going in somewhere and having it, having it work out like, and you didn't know that the deer was there. Like you go in there and then you know, that like this buck, well, I guess both of the bucks behind me, like I'd never seen before, uh, you know, one in Kansas, one in Michigan, but the one in Michigan, I went in there, I'd hunted there before I'd killed a buck there before I saw a buck. I saw a little tiny spike that morning. Um, and I thought that that was it. Like I thought, you know, usually the spot doesn't have any more deer, doesn't produce deer after nine o'clock. So it was like, nine ten and I was super surprised when I looked up and there was a freaking you know big old eight points there you know eight ten whatever you want to call them uh standing there and you know then kill them and like when it all works out and you get the chance to be like I was right like I did it you know it wasn't it wasn't the technology or whatever like you said um and then from that technology standpoint, like that was one of the things I was going to ask you. Like if you listened to the last podcast with. Uh, After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers. If we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, 
and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Alex Chop, and he said he missed like three bucks in a row before he killed the the one and uh like he'd miss like he'd miss like four times in like a span of 24 hours he'd shot like four or five arrows in 24 hours and and i said you know how how do you how do you do that like you know most people like you you like learn from your mistakes and like like myself like i i hit a doe early this year um and i think she took a step like when i shot and I got her in the guts and we just could not find her. I brought her in a dog, everything. But like, I feel like there's that, like the yips, right? Like right out of the, like the first arrow you shoot, you know, whatever, if it's a deer, like when you decide like that you're going to make the shot, like you draw back and you're like, there's, there gets to be like some sort of sense of urgency. And I feel like it's usually the first deer of the year is the one that like the first time you draw, draw your bow back or the first time you shoot a arrow at an animal of the year, that's like your most likelihood to fail, mm-hmm. you know? And so what was going through your mind? Like, how did you keep yourself composed through that being like, this is your biggest buck. Like you obviously didn't know that he existed or that he was there. And like, you know, for, for, you know, 99% of us, you know, we've all been in that situation where like you see movement and then all of a sudden you see tines and then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, that's a shooter. And then you're like, Oh my God. Like, and then you get that full draw, you know, your platform squeaks, like all these different like scenarios that, that happened there. Like, what were you, what was going through your mind? Like, how could you help someone else to say like, this is what I did to keep my composure in this ridiculous situation that has been something as an educator like i always try to take a situation and like find what is those golden moments that you can that you can take away and i always revert back to my it was probably my second year of hunting um i had a deer really close and i i let all my emotions get ahead of me And I literally could not coordinate my body to pull back the bow. I literally could not draw. That was probably up until like my first, my first three to five years. That is the only deer that I have ever let walk within range without trying to fling an arrow at it. And it's literally because I couldn't pull back the bow. I was so tense. I was just so frozen and I, I could not pull it back. And I, I, I walked away from that experience. Like you, you want to harvest meat. You can do this with domestic animals time after time. But yet when you have this wild animal walk in front of you, you just lose your mind. And that really kind of changed how I, how I practice that really trying to changed how, um, when I, when I'm, you know, in the yard, I'm getting in the stand and I'm trying to go through that and I'm trying to role play in my head, this deer coming in. And like, as I, as I even draw up on a block target to really like, that's not a block target. That is a deer. And so I'm making the same movements, like a decisive draw, but smooth and slow, and then settle that pin. And then just like, 
just like you preach uh, to a lot of your listeners, is just continue to go through the motions. Have your process ready to go. And then at the same time, mixing that with Uncle Frank and being like, the more that you put deer down, the less you're going to think about the next deer. So my biggest thing, and I guess I can have this for anybody, when you decide that's a shooter, stop looking at its head. Don't look at its head anymore. And I want to say that was my saving grace. As much as the darkness was a hindrance, at least when I first thought, that at dusk, that not really being able to pick out that exact spot forced me to look for that spot and not look at its head. Forced me to see that animal, I don't want to say as a silhouette, but to see the body of the animal. And that was my main focus. And we'll worry about the head later. But that, I believe, helped me keep my sense about me and not let that ambition of, of antlers get ahead of me. Um, oh, who was I talking to? I was, I was on a podcast with somebody, oh, probably a year ago. And they talked a little bit about when greed gets into the mix, when you're already thinking of that thing on the wall and being the hero and bringing that home, that's your first step into losing the battle is that you're already thinking ahead instead of going through that process. So being in the moment and then, yeah, stop looking at that antler and just find that spot where you need to hit. And that's, that's probably what I want to be able to tell people is that, yeah, it's when you get those yips, you get those shakes, focus on what you need to do and the rest will all come together there at the end. I think, I think that there's, there's some, you know, there, there is that part about like having been there before, um, but I think like, I think that's a double-edged sword, like as, you know, on these, and, and I'm going to talk from like um, an out-of-state trip type thing. And then like as the season, like, so this, this year in Michigan, like I've not killed a deer uh, in, in Michigan. So I, I hit that doe that I didn't recover. And then when I was in the UP, um, the day before I saw that big buck, I was hunting in a different spot. And, uh, I missed one, like the smallest little yearling that you've ever seen in your life, um, with my longbow. And I finally got a shot off. Like I finally got drawn and got a shot off and the limb hit a, hit the tree limb and the bow spun out of my hand and I dropped the bow and like everything like went like terrible. Um, but I think like, as we get further along into the season, you know, the days are shorter, our opportunities to hunt are less. Um, and you feel that pressure, like, like, so whether it's, you know, and, and, and maybe you've been posed this question before, but like, people will ask me, like, do you think like having a podcast gives you more pressure? Like, do you feel pressure to like kill deer? Um, and I would say that the answer is no, cause I don't really feel that way because I, f- I feel confident in being able to kill deer. Um, you know, I, I don't see that as being like a really problematic thing for me. However, like as you get further into the year and like now I've only got these many sits, like I'm going hunting this weekend and I'm, I'm, th- I'm got, I, my freezers are like legitimately full. Like I had to bring, uh, <laughs> Frank, the uh, meat over to Frank and put it in his freezer. Cause I'm like completely full and we still haven't cut up the deer that my daughter's, uh, 
<laughs> like, yeah. So it's like, um, it isn't like about the meat type thing. Like for me, like from gun season on is always like, we're taking the longbow and we're going to, we're going to try, but that mm-hmm. try now I'm, I mean, I'm like really looking at the maps, but I think people get that pressure as the season goes on. Well, if they haven't shot anything and it's like, well, I have to shoot something, I have to shoot something. And then I feel like that too is like where you make a mistake because you're like, don't mess it up. Or this could be my last opportunity. Um, whereas in reality, every sit, you know, your whole world, your whole sit, you know, you thought your night was over and you know, 30 seconds later, here's the biggest buck that you've ever shot walking in. And it went from like a crappy night to a great night to a nervous night to the greatest night yet, you know? So it, everything happened so quickly, but I think we, you know, when you pull that bow back and you're pressing, you know, you're thinking like, Oh my God, don't mess this up. That's the other side of that greed. When you've talked yourself out, you've, you've already relegated yourself to, to screwing it up. You know, you've talked yourself into screwing it up. Yes. You can want it too bad. <laughs> I think that's how you're, you're explaining. You can want it. You, as far as even like Jesse, you said, I haven't killed anything. When that first deer that comes up this season, or excuse me, that uh, when you take that long ball this weekend, like part of me wants to tell you, like, I want you to enjoy the hunt at the beginning just to be able to go out and hunt because there is a high chance that you're not going to shoot it, but it's not an absolute zero. But if you let that high percentage, you let that number float around in your head, that's what's going to culminate you're going to believe that you're going to screw up and you will then screw up or you have a small margin of success and that makes you then have those shakes you're going to miss that narrow gap but if it's if you feel natural if you're out there just enjoying the elements if you are and part of it too is like if you're surprised by the animal you don't have the time to put the pressure on yourself you just react and so bit a little bit of my early season success with that buck might be your late season success here where if you get surprised this weekend that might actually be your saving grace that you go through your motion you go through your process you don't think about well i haven't put a buck or i haven't put a deer down uh in michigan and i have a podcast and i have to live up to these expectations that i've put into my own head like that's that battle i think that we, that every ambush hunter goes through is that we're our own worst enemy sometimes like, yeah, it could be super cold, but that's not going to stop you. But yet you with a bad thought, that's what's going to hold you back. So making sure that you are in a good state of mind, making sure that you're enjoying yourself for just being out in the hunt. I tell you what mornings I love bringing out, I bring a Stanley, a coffee. I don't care if it's early season. I don't care if it's late season. Like if it's a morning hunt, I'm bringing coffee. I'm going to get out there early because it's going to allow me a chance to screw up, get lost, get tangled in the briars. But then once I get to that tree, I get up in the stand, like those first couple sips of coffee, man, that's, that's what I look forward to. (laughs) Yeah. I think one of the things that gets lost on us is that like bigger picture type thing, like just, just being out there, you know, you, you talk about that, like being out there and enjoying it. And I was thinking about that encounter that I had with that big buck. And like, I was talking about it at work yesterday and like it, 
like is, is one of those things that haunts me, you know, and like they, you, you talk about it and you say, you know, you might have to live, let the biggest buck of your life walk because it's out of range with the longbow, but you could have killed them with your regular bow. And I'm like, you think about that in your head and you're like, yeah, I'd be okay with that. You know, I made this decision. Um, and this wouldn't have been the biggest buck of my life, but it would have been, you know, it was a really good buck. And like, it's, it haunts me. Like I would have w- way rather it been like, I would have way rather have been sitting in my dad's tree stand, like 50 yards away and had the deer at 70 and been like, oh, there was no chance. I wouldn't even have shot him with my bow. Might as well be 750 at yeah. that point. Yeah. Yeah. But the fact that, you know, he was at 20 and I thought he was at 30, so I didn't shoot. And watching the video of him walk away, quartering away without a care in the world, like, I mean, that's like seared into my brain. And like, you know, having having your wife say, like, well, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Like, I think I need to get like more into like the uncle Frank ma- mindset with the longbow and like, just got to start, you know, trying to fling arrows. Like, cause you haven't, <laughs> you have not taken one with no. long yet. No, I've been hunting. And it might be, it might be one of those, like, just rip it. Like it doesn't matter what it is. And I, I don't want, you know, don't want to get, get into the playbook of like that hunt with that buck, yeah, but yeah. to be I mean, your wife was right at that point, and maybe it's because you talked yourself out of it. And now this amazing moment that you did ha- that you shared with this buck. Granted, it you may never see that buck again. You might see him again next season, but at the same time, like you got to be that close to that animal. And instead of this being an enjoyable aspect, like now you said it haunts you. Like you're back with your your yeah, questioning yeah, yeah. your own moves and stuff. Where at the same time, like with that that longbow, yeah, it might be because I'm the same thing with my longbow. It has I'm I'm so excited. I I took it down to um the Kalamazoo show and the boyer that made that that model bow was there. I have him he signed it for me. And I, I did, I was like, I'm so excited to get this, you know, to get this bow to kill something. What I want to do is I want like of the animal that I kill, I want to dip my thumb in the blood and I want to wipe that across your signature or that you create this bow and that, you know, the blood goes on onto your signature, but I haven't been able to do that yet, but I've just enjoyed so much taking it out, practicing with it, flinging with it. I've only gone in the stand twice with it and I've been skunked both nights. But at that same time, like, yeah, it's like this, this game that we always play with ourselves. We can, we can hate what we're doing with it, but at the same time, like, you know, to push ourselves to have those goals is a good thing, but to be able to react and be able to go through your process in the moment, that's where things are, I think are really going to shine. If we let success the idea of success cloud what you're trying to do, then you're going to be stuck on the roadside like me, fine and venison. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that <laughs> true success, right? And so I want to come at this, you know, we've talked to you before about, um, you know, kind of fancy recipes and kind of uh, somewhat exotic type things, right? But let's let's talk about like, um, let's say that this is your like 
first deer or you're kind of like uh, an adult onset hunter and you go and you take your deer to get processed and you bring it home, right? And you've got these white wrapped packs that say ground, roast, steaks. Maybe you got one that says neck roast. Maybe you've got a whole backstrap or maybe that backstrap's cut up into pieces, right? So everybody will say, okay, there are people. Well, first of all, let's get into this. There, because, you know, you're going to do, you know, chili, sloppy joes, tacos, uh, spaghetti, a, a roast spaghetti, right? So beyond that, like, what are some easy, good recipes that you can do that are outside of that? And then one of the questions that I wanted to ask, like, in there is, like, where does this gaminess, you know, because, again, in that same new hunter, new person to cooking venison, to preparing venison, um, where does that gaminess start what is some ways to remove it or hide it or whatever if that's one of the things that you're dealing with and then what are some dishes that kind of lend to that gaminess and can like almost enhance the flavor of the dish if that's something that you're you're trying for gotcha let me tackle the gaminess first because that can then take us into where we want to go with now that you have this um, first off, you know, you're an adult onset hunter. You, you took it to a processor, you got it all cut up, brought to you and you got, you got Joe Schmo saying like, ah, it's no good. Cause it's gamey. Um, what Joe Schmo is looking at is that it doesn't taste like beef and getting over that hurdle is the hardest part when it comes to, uh, an early hunter trying to do something different with his venison. Um, We've been we've been taught early on um, old school ways have have had us make that into uh, into beef. You know, when you when you make tacos, you put a bunch of seasoning onto it. Hey, these taste like beef tacos. Yeah, they do because it's seasoned meat. It's heavily seasoned meat. Um, same thing with spaghetti. You've got the acid from the the tomatoes. You've got all the the basil, you got the onion, you got whatever you put into that marinara sauce. That is what comes out, and the meat is merely a, a secondary note in that pasta. Even if you make a uh, a meatball, there's still uh, either probably at that point you added fat to it in order to get it to bind. Um, but then you've got again heavy seasoning. Um, it's going to be cooked, and then it's going to be doused in a sauce. So it's just again that rinse and repeat of seasoning and sauce, seasoning and sauce. That's going to cover up that original venison flavor, and that's going to then be the – that's what gets people into like, oh, I like venison, until they try their straight first piece of venison. Even in a backstrap, um, as mild of a flavor as that is going to be, that is going to be – again, it's going to taste like venison. It does not eat only corn and soybean. Now, 
Do we find deer in fields of corns and soybeans all the time? Absolutely. But then they're going to go into the wood lot. They're going to have the woody brows. They're going to eat the cedars. They're going to be in the juniper. They're going to pick on the briars that are everywhere. They they munch on everything. They get bored easily with one type of thing. That's why you have these land managers that are like, put a smorgasbord of stuff out there because you want to keep these deer moving about and continuing to have them eat what, what you're putting out. So the smorgasbord of stuff is what they're eating. And then the result of that comes out into a flavor that's far more complex than just a feedlot steer. And that's where people are immediately like, whoa, no. I don't like this because it doesn't taste like beef. That's that reaction. As much as they say it's like, ew, it's gross, that's what their body is telling them. But the, if you can front load that, you can kind of overthink what you're trying to, you can try to, you know, combat those bad thoughts and be like, this is going to taste different. This is a piece of venison that is going to have a more earthy flavor to it. You're going to get more of these. Uh, for lack of a better term, uh, a little funk to this meat that's going to allow you to acquire that taste. The guys who love straight venison usually have had it for a long period of time. It's the people that are starting out that have that hurdle of trying to acquire that taste for venison. So if you're early in early starter, you know, sticking with the, with the stuff we talked about, tacos, spaghetti, those are great ways to handle that. Burgers, you know, at, when you're starting out and maybe you got a bunch of kids to feed and you got a wife who's kind of iffy on it, ground is going to be your biggest, biggest friend. Um, I know we just cut a bunch of deer up for our big cut night. My one buddy brought two deer and he's like, literally, I want back straps for me because I'm the only one to eat them. And then I want ground the rest of the way. Uh, we're going to make summer sausage, we're going to make sticks, but then at the same time, my kids eat tacos, spaghetti, and burgers all the time. So they that's how their family eats. And so no fault of him, that's how he's going to have all his stuff done. And that's going to be a great entry point to that. The second part of being able to combat gaminess is, yeah, field care, um, being able to get that uh, gut out, being able to get air into that gut system to start to leach out the blood or at least let the blood flow out of the animal by letting it hang for a couple days. Um, not letting it spoil, get too hot, uh, getting it cooled down. And then at that point into the freezer, cause I'm assuming you're not going to eat the whole animal at that point, but then be able to get that into the freezer after a good clean processing. And whether that's yourself or a processor, like they're going to have to go through that same, same thing. Um, the fat of deer, I'm, I'm beginning to play more with fat, um, either as a culinary thing or at least a way that I can use it. Um, just cause I want to be more sustainable. I want to be able to use more and more of this animal. So I'm, I'm toying with some different ways to use venison fat, but at the same time, like that harbors a lot of those, uh, really pungent flavors. So making sure you get fat out of the way, making sure you get silver skin out of the way. That's that chewiness that allows that to linger in your mouth for a little while. And so just being good about cleaning that off when you process it and left, leave you with just the solid meat is going to be helpful. And then I think I want to say that probably the second part of that too is not overcooking it. 
just like with a duck. You take a, a beautiful mallard and you pan sear that breast. You render out that fat. You get it to a medium rare and then you call it good. Because once you take that to uh, medium well, all of a sudden you just taste iron. You just taste that livery flavor. And it's just that's the makeup of the animal if you overcook it. And venison being uber lean doesn't have the marbling, doesn't have the uh, soybean and corn fat to be able to save how done that piece of meat is. That's why you can take beef to well and still have it be moist is because it's got marbling. The venison is just going to get tough. It's going to get irony. It's going to really have those off flavors pop. So keeping that on the more medium rare side, that is going to be beneficial as well. It's going to mild up those flavors, but at the same time, you're going to get a you're going to get a venison flavor that's going to be sought after. That's what's going to be palatable to you. That's going to help you learn, especially on that backstrap, that this is what I'm looking for. Because if I go too far, that's when things get too strong. It's funny when you talk about that overcooking, because like when you when you're describing it, like I like it was it was visceral to me. Like I could I can feel that like that like it almost like shreds in your mouth and it, it just, you know, overcooked venison and especially like venison that's like gone well, or like it's something that you try to reheat the next day that was like too cooked. And then you, you I mean, it's just like, it, I, I don't want to say that it's like not good, but like the mouthfeel is like terrible. Mm-hmm. And like, when you talk about, when you were mentioning like eating, or like finding a way to reuse venison fat. I'm thinking like, first of all, you can't eat it. Like the, the, you talk about mouthfeel. It's like, why don't you melt a candle and like dip some venison in it and then have like a, a <laughs> then, then eat it and then see how your mouth feels. Like I was thinking like can, the, candles, like what else candles, could you yeah. use for? <laughs> well, I've, I did bird suet. That was a big fun one that I, I did. And we've got some bricks now. So those have to actually get out to the bird feeder. Um, here soon. So we've made those from last year, but I did, I saved all my fat for off this one dough. And she, I mean, she, she had like inch and a half thick, uh, cap on her rump. And so I kept all that fat. And so the boys helped me put together these little bricks of bird suet and we rendered it just like you would tallow. Um, so I, I chunked it up in real small pieces and then that got all put into the Dutch oven. And as I rendered that down, that liquid, I filled up in these little molds. Basically, the, they were our Tupperware. I just filled those up with birdseed, and then I poured the the rendered fat in there. Those all went into the fridge, solidified up. And so, boom, I got, basically, I had to, for the cost of the seed, I now have something to occupy our winters with by just being able to put these out in the yard. So it was like, perfect. That, that was one way. So check, got that. Second way that I've been using it is uh, I got a friend in Montana who he was telling me that he uses uh, his venison fat, either his elk or his uh, deer out there, that he'll use that on his cast iron. So I've been doing, I've got one pan that I'm like, you are the sacrificial pan. You are only getting seasoned with uh, deer tallow and uh, rendered out um, deer fat. And I tell you what, like, with as saturated fat as that venison is and how that's such a bad mouth feel when I have put on 
that venison fat, like you can take an egg, crack it on there, and you can roll that egg around on a cast iron pan. There's no sticking to this. I have got that seasoned down very well. Eating better is easy with Factors delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. And I want to say it's because of how saturated fat that is. And the, the, the way you can tell about saturated fat is that um, like room temperature, it's, uh, it, can be, it can be stiff. And so you see like, you know, pork fat, it almost like in your hand can render out or like duck fat, like shoot, you get it to like 71 degrees and it starts to render at that point. But this stuff at room temp, it's like a brick and it's, you know, that's the way these deer are made up. And so getting that pan hot and then letting that, that fat work into those pores, shoot, it's not even fully cool yet. And that stuff's already starting to really work in and hold that, uh, hold that season. I know your brother-in-law is big into cast iron. I, I think he'd be very interested. I know he's got probably his avocado oil. I know he's got uh, probably the paste wax uh, from, from you name it, a whole number of, number of companies. But I, I challenge him, try out uh, deer tallow or deer fat on your cast iron. You might be surprised. So, so talk to me about that rendering process then. Like, so, because uh, I, you know, you you listen to like the the bear grease podcast, right. Where they talk about like, Oh, you know, it used to be a unit of measure. And I've seen like the things on TikTok where people are actually taking bacon fat and like heating it up or shaking it up or whatever, and then separating it out and saying like, this is the bad stuff. And then you can reuse this to cook with and et cetera. So like, what is the process? Like, let's say that we were to do that. Cause my, the deer that my daughter killed has a, a full inch cap around the whole rump. So, I mean, yeah. we, we got something to play with. <laughs> Good deal. You want to get those pieces mainly it's for the speed of it. So you want to get yourself like a, a heavy laden uh, pot. Um, a Dutch oven works out super well, whether it's enamel, whether it's cast, whatever it is. But anyway, a, a heavy pot that can go in your oven. Um, and you want to take that fat and chop it up real small. Smaller you can chop it up, the better. If you want to run it through your grinder, that's even a better idea. You're looking for surface area at this point because we want to apply uh, as much even slow heat as we can to as much of that fat. We want to let it liquefy out slowly. This is going to be a, a long, long process. I, I don't want to say super long, but it's going to take you a couple hours to do this. So you chop it up or grind it up, and that all goes into the Dutch oven. So you have these pieces of fat that you've then coagulated. Some of it's got meat on it. Some of it's going to have silver skin. There's going to be like you're going to be a, there's going to be a gland in there. There always is a gland in there. 
But by going through this process of grinding it up, chopping it up, get your oven at 300 degrees, put that in, maybe put a piece of foil on top in case it starts to bubble out or boil and just let that go to work. And you'll check it after like an hour and you're going to see partial uh, liquefaction. You're going to see now those pieces, it'll look like a a slurry at that point. There's going to be pieces floating in this liquid fat. Then you'll check it after another hour and a half, or excuse me, just after another hour. And you're going to see there's going to be less of those pieces. You want to get as close as you can to being able to let all that fat render out. If you pull it out and you see there's just a couple pieces in there, you you could keep it in there for another hour. Or you could say, hey, just call this process done. You're going to have plenty off of you know, those, those rumps, you're going to have plenty of fat. You're not going to know what to do with it. Like you're going to end up with probably a, uh, a pint mason jar of this stuff just off of that. So then now that I have it all liquid, I want to then pull that out of the oven again, using, you know, um, heat, heat protection because it's going, it's going to be hot. Um, and you want to then pour this through either through a sieve or, uh, cheesecloth, if you got cheesecloth might be a little bit far, but anyway, you're going to want to strain out the solids and keep the liquids, uh, separate. So I have something to catch the solids there at that point. I have a fine mesh strainer and I just love that thing. It's a little, it's a smaller one. Um, that way you're not using a huge colander, you're using something that's a little bit smaller, but then I put that into like a glass vessel. It really does go become like a Mason jar for me. Um, and so having, having the liquid fat in there, you can then do a number of things at that point. Actually, if you were pouring it out, you've got those solids out and it's still in a liquid form, you could go right to your your bird suet then at that point and then just let that solidify. If you want just a jar of fat that you're going to mess with, put it in that um in that jar or if even if you have like a waxed cup um like a drinking cup that you would then uh, you got to keep it cool somehow. I mean, it's not going to disform it or anything. But that way you can then tear it off and then score, you know, make it into pucks or have smaller jars. Cause this stuff, once it does solidify, it gets pretty rock hard. It gets pretty crumbly. Um, it's, it's no joke that you put it in that Mason jar. The only way it's coming out is if you're banging on it with a, with a knife, trying to like peel it out of there. So have it be a wide mouth one, something you can have easy access to. But once you got in that jar, just let it solidify. And now you've got your deer fat that you can mess with. I wouldn't necessarily make biscuits out of it, but <laughs> if you were going to be using it towards, like we said with our project here of the cast iron, that point, now you just take, uh, you know, you take a spoon and you pull off like uh, maybe a couple tablespoons, just chisel that out, drop that into that uh pan that's already gotten hot you've already wiped out from breakfast or whatever you've had drop that in there do that same process let it leach in set it off to the side and let that uh harden up and you'll be amazed at how how well that does stuff does work um but yeah if you can skip that step if you're going with the bird suet thing if you've got another project if you are going to make the candles let me know if, if, if someone's going to be making candles because that's an interesting project where you got to use lye or I know there's candles that don't use lye. They can just straight up use the fat. There's a lot of different ways, you, projects you can do with it. But yeah, I'm going to stick with the bird suet and cast iron though. Those seem to be the, the two easiest. So one of the things you mentioned in there was was burgers, right? And 
I, a couple a couple of things. Like so, I've had two people now talk to me about. Well, so I think generally when when we would do ground, like when we would have it made, we would say add twenty percent pork fat or beef. I think we use pork fat usually. Um, and then when we ground our own, we would just either throw in bacon or sausage in that same about. And I think the last stuff that we did was it was pork fat. It was uh like trim from like uh like the Boston butts or whatever. So it was like the pork cap from like what you would normally uh smoke. But um two people now have told me like just straight ground venison, which I've never, you know, ours always came with some fat in it. Like that's always what we had, but they would do, they, they, they're really John and uh, my buddy Mark do smash burgers. And they're like, they don't hold together unless you get them like super thin and say they do them like super, super thin and they get them really crispy around the edges. But with just straight venison. Now, when you're doing venison, when you're talking burger, taco, spaghetti, are you talking straight ground venison or are you adding something in there when you're doing your own processing? Or would you recommend that when you're getting it from the processor? Yes and no. And what are what's your family eating? And there's I mean, there's not one right answer. Here's what I here's what I've done. I've done both. I've done uh, straight venison, and that is is doable. In like when you're talking with with John, who does straight venison, having tackiness and having something stay together that's so lean is difficult. Um, if he's going to make a regular burger and he puts that on, that's the, the amazing thing about Blackstones is nothing can fall through the grates because it's just a solid piece of steel. And I think that's what makes the smash burger burger even available to us is because it's a it's a griddle on a grill or even an oven or or wherever if it's not like if it's a grates at that point that stuff's going to fall apart it's not going to have enough binding to hold itself together there are tricks around that um one adding some cold water and when you're mixing in your seasoning, you're going to have to mix in the seasoning when it comes to the, the straight burger because you're going to want to knead that meat. Um, you're going to want to be able to get some of that protein that's inside of those cells. Um, you're going to want to have to work that out. And so that's one way you can get that to hold a little bit more together is by kneading the meat um, and forcing some of that tackiness. The second thing you can do is add a binder. And that would be... Uh, soaking some breadcrumbs in water and adding an egg. Uh, the egg is already uh, a fat that's going to be in there. I mean, it's, that's what the yolk is. And then by having the breadcrumb mixed in with that, it's going to, that's what's going to hold that burger together. Uh, or like in the sake of meatballs, even with uh, normal 80-20, you're going to add that breadcrumb or you're going to add the egg in that recipe. And that's merely to hold that ball together. So that's one way if you're saying, I want to stick with straight venison, uh, either you have something against mixing domestic and wild or other, you're just, you know, you, you have dietary, dietary restrictions and you can't have pork, whatever that may be, there is a way to, to go straight venison. I, however, enjoy 
a little bit more of the moisture, a little bit more of the fat when it comes to making burgers, when it comes to making meatloaf. But I like it also to be venison. I don't want to hide what I'm eating. I want to be able to enjoy that. And so that's why I steer away from bacon or sausage is because it's going to add a smokiness. It's going to add a porkiness because it's going to be adding the flesh of that animal. Pork fat is actually very neutral. It doesn't have a pork flavor as much as the flesh does. It is merely just the corner soybean fat that's there. So by mixing, I do an 80-20 mix of pork back fat, which is like what you were talking about, the trimmings. Um, If you go to a butcher, you can ask specifically for back fat. Uh, It's a little bit higher on the hog, That's and it comes a little pricey, kind of goes along with the whole idea of like high on the hog used to being rich. But by getting that uh, pork back fat, you can then grind that in with your with your burger. You got to figure out your ratios, um, but I try to gauge for that 80-20 because what that mix is that I get is I get something that is substantial enough where the fat will hold that burger together or the fat will hold that meatloaf together. Well, that's a bad analogy because I add the binder in anyway, but it's going to hold that burger. At the same time, I'm going to know that that's a venison burger. I'm going to taste those sought after funky, unique flavors of that animal. And it's not going to taste like bacon. It's not going to taste like smoked pork has been intertwined into this. You're going to get that, that venison flavor. I know some guys do like to add beef fat. Um, that is even going to take, if you're looking to mask it, beef is a great way. Beef fat is a great way to mask a lot of that make it really taste like beef fat. Because I think with with beef fat, it does hold more of that beefy flavor to it, especially if you go with the the grass-fed, the yellow stuff. That's definitely going to really add that beef flavor to you. So if that's what you're looking to mask it with, I would go that direction. But for someone who wants to be able to have a very versatile burger that can cover the most ground as far as different directions a recipe can go, I like 80-20 with pork back fat. So let's let's go um, to maybe getting creative here. I mean, I've got my own ideas, but um, so let's say that you're a new hunter and you got this and you said, okay, I don't want any fat in it. You get it home. Your family's like, uh, we're not eating this. It won't stick together. We can't cook with it, you know. So maybe you want to try to add some fat, but you don't have a grinder or anything like that. You got a knife and a fork, a couple hands. Uh, what do you What are you doing? Like, is there a way to add fat to it? Like after the fact, you can, but you risk the next trip through the grinder. Um, tough part is. How many times has it been froze, refroze? How many times um, has it been uh, has it been worked in? There's a lot of variables with that. In my experience, if you've got a bunch of fat, or excuse me, you get a bunch of burger without fat, it's just straight venison. Have that ready to go for yes, taco, spaghetti. Um, my actually my um wife's grandfather made 
uh, oh my goodness, gyozas, uh, which are fried dumplings. You know, going with something like that where you're either going to wrap the wrap it up or you're going to do uh, sliders on the blackstone or you're going to do um, where it doesn't matter how much it falls apart, be it in the spaghetti and the taco. Save that for that purpose. Your next year, that's when you're going to do your your fat integration. To go back and try to add fat into already ground meat, I feel that you're going to end up with a emulsified, pasty, mealy setup because you're going another trip. It's another unfreeze, hot trip through a possible warm grinder, and then back to the freezer again where it's going to lose more moisture. I feel if, if it's been done, no fat, just stick with that. And then you can always get another deer the next time. I was just thinking more along the lines of like, in a in a cooking type situation, like where you could take like some ground pork or like a pork sausage or something and just kind of knead it in there per application, right? That that could also be a thing. Like, let me go back to those um, gyozas. Uh, that's a great way in. Yeah, you've got this straight burger or the straight venison, and you have a pound of Jimmy Dean's sausage. You're gonna make a mess of these things because they're these little like little dumplings. Um, they take a wonton wrapper. It's if you're gonna be having a a fry night, you got your fryer going, or it's gonna be New Year's Eve. That's usually when we have them. You're already adding a bunch of spice mix into this anyway. So why don't you get yourself like a Hawaiian blend? of sausage or get some, you know, sweet maple or something with a little bit of sweetness to it, work that in maybe one pound of that for, you know, pound and a half of your venison, or maybe just one-to-one, whatever your ratio wants to be. You're going to be adding in your green onion. You're going to be adding in, um, you know, your soy sauce, and you're going to have the different ingredients into that, you know, your shaved, uh, shaved up carrot that's all going into there because then you're going to end up making this ball that you're wrapping up and at that point because you've kind of mixed that together and it's in a package that is going to be something you can you can do that too um you know could you mix in your burger and your sausage and make a patty at that point very possible i i can't give 100 percent just because i didn't see how well it got mixed it could be one of those things like, yes, a smash burger could be possible, but once you take it to a regular grill, it starts to fall apart at where there was sausage and there wasn't sausage on the grill. It'll be have to be one of those things like you really got to be be watching what you're doing, especially when you're playing with the idea of trying to mix in fatty fatty mix with a, a very lean mix. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's just one of those things where I've it's just always, we've always just ground in other stuff, you know, whether we're, you know, we're like, all right, we're going to grind this and we're going to make sausage. We're going to grind this and we're going to add fat and like, or if we got a process, like it's, it was always add fat, you know? So I don't know. Now you kind of live in a good area too. just, you know, between, even between me and you, there's a big middle ground of (laughs) dairies and, um, 
pork processors and there's all these like small little hobby farms that are all over the place that shoot these big processing units. These slaughterhouses are packed with the gills of who's the next date of that animal getting in every day. There's going to be animals going into that slaughter facility and using that to your advantage. Does it take a little extra homework to figure out where you need to go or, you know, you can pay a higher price at a retail butcher, but if you find where the the slaughter facility is at, you can usually get a cheaper price on, on trimmings, either be it beef, either be it pork, whatever you're looking for. If you find one of those facilities, um, just so happened, I have to have one, I have one that's between my house and work. So it's like, well, shoot, this is beautiful. I just make a swing on in, put my order in and they have it ready for me, you know, in a couple of days or the next week when I'm ready for sausage, when I'm ready to make burger. Um, so if, if that's one of those things, like you've got all these pieces of trim you or the, uh, yeah, pieces of trim and small pieces that are going to go to grind that need to be ground soon, maybe doing a little before you've unthought, do a little homework, figure out where you can get uh, a high volume about of, of trimmings. And that's going to then make you ready to go on grind night. When you're ready to go with it, you have it already ready set there. So one of the things I guess where we can kind of go from here is I think you work with a company. Well, like if someone was wanting to get some stuff for home, um, I wanted to talk about a couple of things like one, and I, this this had just dawned on me like knives. And I was, was thinking about that like like last year. Like I didn't need it last year. I used it this year in Kansas, but when I went to Ohio last year, like like Frank's always got uh he's got a bag full of fillet knives, and that's what he uses just to Rapalas, and then there's these like cheap ones. He was just looking at. And he just they were when he was down in Ohio at the this one taxidermist, they had like a box of like 30 of these knives. And the guy's like, yeah, these knives are 30. The box of the case of 30 of them was like 90 bucks. He's like, so Heck yeah, I'm in. Like, they're, they're like Billy Bass or something like that. They're like neon green and orange. Uh, but that's what we've cut up all the deer this year with is like fillet knives. But yeah, like there's like those old hickory knives, like uh TJ Merritt, you know, he, He's, I, I feel like those old hickory knives have that like thicker tang. And like, if you've ever seen like a real butcher or like a taxidermist or like whatever, they've got the, the, if you look at one of those knives, like on Amazon, like an Amazon old hickory butcher knife, it's like this big. And then when you see these guys using it, it looks like a paring knife or like a, fillet knife because it's been ground down and sharpened and changed up oh, so yeah. many times because it's been once used. a week for years yeah years yeah so uh from that side and then on the grinder side and like for me like i like uh pastrami i've been starting to make pastrami and my mother-in-law got me like a from like a goodwill or something a meat slicer and that thing is freaking awesome like it changes the whole game like with pastrami because it's oh absolutely really salty really rich but when you can cut it really thin it changes like the whole experience but as far as like equipment if you want to start doing this yourself because some of this stuff like i think ernie's got a grinder that's like a horse and a half and it's it was like you know 500 bucks or something like that there's the attachment that goes on your 
KitchenAid mixer, but that, you know, heats up really quick. It, it, it it's really slow. Uh, doesn't, doesn't, you know, it will grind meat, but not a whole deer like in a, in a weekend. <laughs> but, Absolutely. <laughs> so when you're looking at specs on this kind of stuff, or like, if you wanted to get a meat grinder and you see, like, I mean, I can remember like when I was a kid, like in the back of church, like in the kitchen, there was like a grinder, like attached to the, you know, just the old hand crank yes. deal. Um, and so like, what are you, what are you recommending for like a regular guy that might do like one or two deer a year? And then a guy that does like a whole bunch and wants to do it themselves, all the grinding, all that, like, where would you point them? Gotcha. That is a man that the grinders is a big, is a big one. Um, grinders are, are, are one of those things where raw horsepower is going to be helpful. And the gauge of that is also going to determine again, like if you're up to one to two deer a year and you're, you know, you're like, it, it's just me. I, I get my two bucks. I get, you know, two tags from Michigan and I only plan on doing a, a couple deer my, myself, you know, those little, uh, three quarter horse or one horse, um, grinders work great. I would steer clear of anything that's got plastic parts or poly augers or anything that, uh, looks cheap that's that's going to fall apart on you look for something that is all steel look for something that you know has a steel cutter and a steel you know steel holes being or the the die the die is is all steel at that point you want to steer away from like the aluminum pieces will that kitchen age attachment do well in a pinch yes i have one and I like it for when I'm going to make a five pound batch of you name it. I just need to grind something through real quick. It almost takes me longer to set up the KitchenAid in order to then run the meat through. Then it serves its purpose. If you're going to do it that version, can you run a whole deer through that little guy? No. It, even with ice bags on it, even with uh, putting it into the freezer and then trying to pull it out, even hitting it with some olive oil from the cutter onto the onto the grind plate, there's just so much friction that's going to happen. There's just so much meat going through that little unit, and that unit does work that motor on that KitchenAid. Even though those things are bomb-proof, like, it's still going to heat up really fast. That's good for, like, 5 to 10 pounds max per time. If you're going to be making 20 pounds of burger, I would I would then get a standalone unit. Get you a three-quarter horse. Get you a one-horse unit, and that's going to work out really well. Um, if you're going to be doing several deer and hunting's going to be one of your main ways that you're going to acquire protein for your family, you're looking to make this a lifestyle thing, that's when you're going to be looking at the horse and a half. That's when you're going to be looking at the Hobart, the Burrow, the, you know, looking on Craigslist and finding some butcher shop that closed up and getting that old unit, you know, those, but those things, they cost thousand dollars, 
easy. It takes longer to clean the units than it does to ride, to run, you know, two deer through it. You're like, it just horks it down and spits it out. And you're like, man, I'm all done. But now you got to spend an hour cleaning this thing apart, disassembling it. That's the next spectrum that you're going to be looking at. I, I made the investment and I went with the horse and a half. It is a full tabletop unit. Um, and it, it kicks ass. It put like, I can't keep up with it. Uh, I did, I did 30 pounds the last time that I had a, a buddy came over. I had 30 pounds ready to go. He had 40 pounds ready to go. And it took us literally an hour to just get all that meat through twice. Like we spent more time bagging it because I have, you know, I got a little sausage stuffer. So we were putting the poly bags, but like that meat just pushed through so nice, but it's because we jumped up in the horsepower. It's also the gauge too of the throat. So as you're shoving stuff down there, this one's the 32 gauge. And then I think like the next one, once you get up there is like the 22 gauge, like it just continues to get bigger and bigger, but that's when you start to get into those commercial sizes Something off the shelf at Cabela's will get you through for those one or two deer. But if you're going to make this a lifestyle thing, you're going to heat those, even those one horses up a lot. So jumping up to something big, making the investment, um, especially if you're part of a hunting group and you get a couple guys like, you know, that $500, that $600, shoot, that $700 unit is so nice. But can you... Can you drop that much coin on a very specific piece of equipment? Well, it it, it is going to get you a good majority of the venison that you're going to eat. But if you put three or four guys in on one grinder, that's going to take that sting away. Because then you're still going to be buying bags. You're still going to be buying fat. Like there's still this, this ongoing input into that stuff. But it's going to break less on you. You're going to spend less time going through the grind of grinding, you're going to be spending more time cooking that by getting one of those bigger units. So for yourself, decide what, what kind of investment do you have meat wise into this? Is it 20 pounds max that you're going to be getting on this? You can get something off the shelf. If you're looking to make a lifestyle change, you're looking to make a health change. You're wanting to meet use total venison on what you're doing, then that's when you're going to have to make that, that jump into that bigger unit. But yeah, those ones off the shelf, they do a good job. But if you're going to be, if you're going to be running your family off this stuff, yeah, make the big choice and and go with the big grinder. Um, the one I'm specifically using, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily working with them, but I love the stuff that they're coming out with. And that's that made by meat. Um, that's the, the grinder I have and they've got a sausage mixer that actually attaches to that grinder. So the more that these, these grinders are getting super versatile, some of them are, are becoming stuffers as well. Some of them are, you know, adding on different attachments. Some of them have foot pedals. If you want to really get into accessorizing your piece. So if you want to take a standalone unit, and then have, again, several different products you can make off of it, that's going to be something that the more money you invest into it, the more the more application you can have with the different attachments. What about knives? Knives. Um, cheap is good. Old Hickory, 
you can't go wrong with old hickory and Rapala. Those fillet knives work super well. I currently use a commercial item that you can get on Amazon uh, for, I think they're like 20, 25 bucks a piece. And they're going to last you, shoot, you're, they're going to last you a long time. They'll last a butcher, you know, maybe a year, maybe a year and a half, but they're using that every single day. And they're, they're grinding that down. Um, but I go with a, a Victorinox or a Dexter knife. Um, they've got a poly handle. I like the six inch semi-flex. Uh, it's not super stiff. But when you rub, when you take that knife and you put that right on the side femur of your deer, you can really push into it and it, you'll see that blade flex. And then you just run that blade right along that bone and you pull that meat right off the side of it. There is nothing left. There's no sawing action at that point. You can use that torsion and it's going to flex with you. It's a high carbon steel, which means it's not going to hold its edge as long as say a high-end Wustoff fillet knife, but at the same time, you can put an edge on those things way quicker. You take a couple passes on that steel, it's going to stand that edge right back up. You go to your sharpener, either you know your work sharp or your commercial unit, or even just shoot if you got a uh, yeah, an oil stone or whatever, it does not take more than a couple passes to bring that edge back. That's the, that's the upside of having that softer steel is that a, it's cheap B you can put an edge on it and then you can put an edge back on it and maintain it. Uh, the higher grade stuff, once you put an edge on it and you wreck it, you got to have a professional do that for you. You're not going to be able to sharpen that way back. So they're user-friendly. If you break one, so what? You're out 20 bucks. Just get another one and you'll you'll be on your way. But that's what I cut my teeth on was was those was those knives and I wouldn't switch to anything else just because of the grip they have for me and just how much I know that steel. It just works out so well. Um I guess I'm past the uh, statute limitations on it. I did gank those from the farm um, <laughs> when I first started, but we had a whole set of like knives that were like, these are retired. We're not, we're not using these anymore. And so I just put them in, in a little bo- little pouch. I got five of them and I'm still using them. Shoot. I've been cutting deer now for, shoot, this is 10 years that I've been cutting deer now. And it's the same five, six knives. I just put them in the box. I just sharpen them up each year. And that's, that goes to all the friends' houses that end up wanting saying, hey, help me cut my deer. I bring those knives over. I just touch them up as we go along. And I tell you, they, they last you a long time. You have to really abuse them to either warp them or chip them or, or take it off. It's possible. But at the same time, I, they'll, they'll serve you really well. So let's close this out with uh, one of those questions that I kind of alluded to earlier. Like, what is a non-conventional, easy, fun, maybe like a wow factor type uh, recipe for someone who, like I said, they they got these, these bags of roast ground steak. Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully they have one of their pieces of steak, um, one of their pieces of backstrap left in like a, like a six inch piece. Like I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to, I'm going to request that and, or even, Oh, even better on the tenderloins on the tenderloins. This is, I'm going to make, I'm going to make two like 
predictions for 2024 when it comes to venison. And I'm going to push hard because I really like, I really like this, but I think here, these are going to be the new trends of 2024. So folks, if you want to be on the cutting edge of venison culinary experiences, listen close, lean in. We got, we got this set up. First one is going to be crusting your tenderloins or your back straps. Tomahawks are dull. Tomahawks have been overdone. Move on from the tomahawks. We are now into crusting territory. And the one that I did the other night that just absolutely, I loved it, was a pistachio crusted uh, backstrap. Sounds fancy. Sounds intense. Super easy to do. It is a pistachio crusted venison tenderloin or backstrap. Your choice. This this uh this crusting on there is just going to amp up uh a new flavor that actually works super well with venison i think they've gone to, as far as like lamb domestic lamb is probably the closest thing you can get to venison and they've used this crust a lot on lamb but what you do is you take your piece of backstrap or your tenderloin and you're merely going to sear all sides of it so get it into your cast iron pan and just like get as you're rolling it through, just searing each side for like 45 seconds and you're just getting the outside crispy. You're not cooking it all the way through. You're just getting that crust on the outside. Pull that off and let it rest while it's resting. Either have your food processor there or you can you, you can chop this with your knife as well. Uh, you uh, you want to get some panko breadcrumbs. You want to have the shelled roasted pistachios. It's 2023, about to be 2024. You can buy pistachios without the husks on them. You don't have to do all that work. A little bit of Parmesan. I'm talking the, the, the real flaky stuff, uh, the powdery stuff. That's great to add in there as well. But then a little bit of salt and pepper, uh, maybe a little garlic salt, or excuse me, a little garlic powder. Mix all that together in your food processor, blitz it so you get this uh, breading. Like it's just almost the, and I don't want to say a powder. You don't, you can go too far, but you want to have this little crumble going on. Lay that out on like a, on a, on a plate. Now that you've got your, uh, backstrap that's, that's there, lay on Dijon mustard and then roll that all into your crusting. And that's going to, that, uh, mustard's going to bind it onto that crust. That crust is then, uh, you're going to take that backstrap, you're going to put it into like a 300 degree oven. This is where a probe thermometer is going to help out immensely because you're going to get that to whatever, you're going to get it to like five to 10 degrees less than what you want it to finish at. So if you want medium rare, go to like 110 or 115. Well, no, let me, let me take, if you want rare, go 110, 115. If you want medium-ish, medium-rare-ish, go like 115 to 120 internal temperature. Once you hit that mark, pull it out, let it rest. And then at that point, you can then slice off, you know, if you want to be an inch section, if you want to be a half inch section, but then you slice those up and that crust is going to hold on the outside, set those on a plate, you know, have one sitting on top of the other at an angle sitting there. If you had even a pan sauce, you made like a, a blackberry pan sauce to go along with it. And that's merely just, you take that same cast iron pan 
that you seared it all in, add a little bit of uh, stock, add a little bit of brandy, add your either, you could go blackberry jelly, you could go grape jelly, you could go uh, regular fresh or frozen uh, fruit at that point. Just mix that up, season it the way that you want it, let it thicken up, literally takes less than five minutes, and then you just ladle that over the top. And you took something that was merely just seared a minute ago, something that you would have probably wrapped in bacon and then, you know, regretted that, (laughs) that move, uh, immediately. But now you've got something that's elegant, something that's tasty, something that elevates venison and doesn't make venison this only thing that you have to have with cold light domestics. Like it really does elevate it to the next level. And that's just simply adding a crust to the outside. Now, there's another thing because you said you said two things, and there's one thing that I've seen you kind of tease about, and you said tomahawks are boring. You're going out, and this is not this is kind of like a process yourself. Uh, yes, cut. Uh, called the war hammer. So let's let's talk about what is <laughs> a venison war hammer and. Um, yeah, how how do you come about this thing, and then how do you prepare it? Gotcha. This was uh, this was binge watching um, YouTube this past summer, and um, with that movie, oh, it was like the second movie of Thor. Maybe it was a little while ago. I'm not I'm not a big Marvels fan, but all I remember is everyone was talking about these Thor's hammer, and they were using beef shanks, and they were they were cutting them, uh, basically Frenching the bone so that the bone was exposed. They were then putting these on barbecue pits and barbecuing them forever. And then either serving them with the bone still on. And then you you know, you peeled off the meat or they were shredding the whole thing. And I adapted that and I said, can I do this with venison? And you know what? It may not be. Norse God worthy as far as size, but at the same time, these pack a punch where the tomahawk is going to be your lightweight arrow with a mechanical on the end. The, the war hammer is going to be that piece of meat with the FOC. It is going to punch through. It is going to provide some heft and it's the shank of the animal. You can use either the fronts or the backs. The backs are going to get you, uh, a little bit more substantial meat on these things, but what you're going to be doing is where the Achilles attaches, you're going to score that meat. And I know we had this discussion a long time ago when we were making Asobuco, we were both struggling with how to get a clean cut. How do I make this a process? This is something that I can, I can do without making a big mess. Hatch is a bad I idea. Yes, you went the route of hatchet. <laughs> I went the route of sawzall. Both of us were left unhappy. <laughs> so what I what I found out is just cutting more bone that a finer tooth hacksaw is going to help. And on top of that, the control that I'm going to get with a hand, a manual saw is going to help me out. I want to say that probably 90% of garages right now have a hacksaw that you merely have to go to Ace and get another 
you have to get a fine tooth blade for it. Don't use the one that you've already been cutting a bunch of steel or wood or anything on. Get yourself a, a fine tooth, you know, metal saw blade that you're going to then write meat only on the side of it, like designate you out a, your own saw blade for this. But I score that meat. And then I actually cut that meat off, exposing the full length of that tapering end of the shank, whether it's the front, whether it's the back. Now I'm going to give myself like an inch to two inch of exposed bone. This is where I want to be able to make my cut. And that's where I'm going to hold it sideways. If I got to wrap it in a towel just to give me some stiffness uh, so I can hold it steady, go ahead and do that. I was able to do it just barehanded on the, on the shank. And it's literally just slow strokes, keeping it as straight as you can. Cause now we're thinking presentation at this point, you don't want to, you don't want to mar this up. So I just make sure that I get through that. It does take a few more minutes than say a hacksaw or excuse me, than a sawzall, but it's going to be a much cleaner edge. Same thing with a hatchet. There's not splinters. You don't have, you know, stuff flying everywhere. It's very controlled. So now that I've gotten myself this shortened section of shank and it makes itself actually presentation wise, I I sent you a picture of it. It really does. It stands up on its own. Now the front shanks, you do have that funny knuckle on the, um, the connecting side that would go up into, up into the shoulder. And I would nip that uh, as well. So you get, you, you'd cut your, your tapering end. I would flip it around and then cut that. So it's flush. And that allows you to stand it up. So I've got my, my war hammer constructed. I want to make sure that I take my, my knife and I really scrape that bone clean. I want that to be as white as possible. So if you got any meat on there, scrape that off. If there's any, uh, sinew or connected fat that's there, scrape that off. You want that to be glistening white because that's going to help later when you're when you're presenting this, as you say, Warhammer, you want to have that awe inspiring. You don't want to burnt, you don't want burnt uh, bone at the top. You want that to be popping white. So make sure that that's nice and clean. Now get to the point of of cooking it, and you can go a couple different ways. The one you can go straight onto the smoker, and you're going to add add smoke essentially to it. You're going to set it for. 220 and you're going to let it go for maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And you're just letting the meat absorb that smoke flavor. The drier that you can start these out, uh, the better off because now you don't have to have the smoker wick off the moisture. If it goes in dry and you've got seasonings patented on that, you got your rub already on there that you've already off to a, a great start. Um, I would foil the top of that bone as well. Just take a piece of tin foil and wrap it and then cap it. And that's going to protect that bone from absorbing smoke to it. It's going to keep it whiter. It's going to keep it more brilliant. But now that I've started that smoke adhesion onto that meat and I've got my uh, rub that's already starting to work, now I'm going to want to get that into a real moist environment. So you could take a cast iron pan, put that on your smoke and then put your warhammers in there add you whether it be a, a beer whether it be um just liquid fat whether it be uh 
what you wanted to add other flavorings into it. it. It could be just straight water, but you want to get some liquid into that cast iron that they're now floating around in foil over the top. So now you have this, um, sauna set up here. So you've got moisture that's going to work its way through that meat. You're going to have, uh, that tenting, that foil, keeping as much moisture in there. And then you're going to want to add your probe thermometer. And that's going to get you to where you're going to get your temp to like 200, 201, 202, basically to the point where you're going to be able to shred that meat. And at that point, when you pull it off the smoker, it's going to be real loose. It's going to want to come off. It's going to take a long time. Letting it rest, uh, not rushing that process. Let it sit, you know, pull the cast iron off the smoker and let it sit there on the counter for, you know, 20 minutes or so. And that's going to let that meat absorb as much of that moisture. It's going to let it soften up. It's going to let all that stuff start to come out so that now when you're ready to serve this up, you could go for someone serving. And you could just lay a hammer on their plate and now they get to peel the meat off of that bone and they get the full effect of having that war hammer on their plate. You could even go to the route where you shred it and then it gets either made into a slider. I think it needs to get mixed into some homemade mac and cheese that you were making along next to it. And now you've got the Venny mac and cheese going on that side, just using that barbecue, using that smoker to its full potential. At that point, if you wanted to class it up, this is what I did with a whole whole shank. And I'm very excited to do with these is kind of along that same line where I'm going to add a little bit of smoke to it at the beginning, but then I'm going to move it over into an oven and I'm going to let that slow oven do the work. I'm going to have, um, I'm going to have, probably have some stock in there. I'm going to add some pads of butter. Um, I'm going to want to add some sort of liquor, whether that's going to be a brandy, whether that's going to be, uh, a flavored bourbon or, or, you know, something, you know, maybe, a maybe, maybe ugh, a maple whiskey or something, but then I'm going to tent that in the oven. I'm going to try to let some of those flavors come out and pairing that with a savory oatmeal instead of say pasta or instead of, um, polenta a savory oatmeal is a hearty it's a hearty oat that takes over as far as you know you've got strong flavors from your venison but now at the same time you add a strong secondary flavor in the the savory oats and it just really makes things pop you're just filled with all these different flavors uh i start a pan with just dry oats in there and i'm letting those warm up and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a pot of probably venison stock along next side, alongside of it. And I'm going to ladle that, uh, ladle that stock into the dry oats. And what that's going to do is it's almost like, it's almost like I'm making a risotto at this point, but I'm making it with oats at this point. So I'm letting all that stock be absorbed by the the oats in that point, when I get to the point where it's got the consistency that I want it, that it really starts to thicken up and look like an oatmeal that you would have at breakfast, I'm going to add in, uh, um, mushrooms. I'm going to add in green onion. I'm going to add in a load of Parmigiano Reggiano, the, the thicker stuff. And I'm going to work that in because that's going to melt all through and that's going to really add body and real thicken that up to it. Salt and pepper, that stuff. Now I take that uh, 
savory oatmeal, put that right down on the plate, take that war hammer that I just pull out of the oven and it's real soft, ready to go. It's right around that, yeah, 201, 202, let it rest, pull that off, pop off the cap. So now I have this brilliant white bone exposed. The marble, the marrow is beginning to puddle up on top of it. I've got this velvety rich, uh, venison that's been seasoned up really well and it's taken on those liquid flavors that I put in the bottom of that pan and that's a plate that I'm going to set between two people for like a date night where you're going to do one shared plate because at that point it's that's a lot of meal there there's a lot of venison off one of those rear shanks there's a lot of a lot of fullness there with the oatmeal I think that's a, a meal made for two but that's going to the nth degree when it comes to uh making those war hammers. So yeah, this would be uh this would be a, this would be a 201. This is not a 101. This is a 201 menu. Well, that's great and like that uh you know, I've I've, I've never uh even considered uh, a savory oatmeal. So that's a very a very interesting even brand new concept um from a from a side um standpoint. So um we we always ask and and you know now you've you've you, you're literally a big buck killer. Um, what? <laughs> Do I get? Is there a membership? Do I get a members only jacket or something? Uh, <laughs> no one's approached me today. <laughs> so so what was your setup? Your bow setup? Your and, and what was the platform that squeaked? Gotcha. Um, I was hanging out of a tethered phantom uh, saddle. Love that. I'm using. Hawk sticks, the helium Hawk sticks. Love those. The Hawk platform is the one that squeaked. I'm struggling with that one. And I knew I would be at the beginning. It was cheap. I had a need for a platform and I said, you know what? I'll give it a shot. Do I need to make an upgrade off of that particular piece? I I would say that there's an upgrade Probably here in the in the very near future, but it at least get it got the job done. Um, the squeak wasn't the deal breaker, uh, but anyway, that was probably the piece of equipment that that did uh, give me the most guff of that setup. Uh, bow setup. I am running a. It's a 2020 model. It is the Prime Black 31. I love that bow. That thing is steady in the hand. Um, it is. It is hefty, but I don't worry about I don't worry about that thing quaking in the wind. I don't worry about that thing jumping on me. It, it just works. It's just a solid, rock solid platform, and I really, really enjoy that. I am running a ten inch CBE stabilizer out the front, and then I think it's a eight inch back bar saying that it was a CBE combo that I got that put those together. So those are on there running a drop away rest. I think that's, uh, I can't even think of the name. Q QDR QRD QAD QAD. I think it's a QAD, uh, drop away rest. That was off my old bow. Still working very well. Uh, the site, CBE three pin hybrid. So I got my three pins and then it's got the roller on there. 
I haven't done a whole lot with that roller. I haven't needed to. My 20, 30, 40 works awesome here in the Michigan big woods uh, or field edges, depending on where I'm ever I'm at. I have never needed something longer than that. And I think just because I'm also comboing it with the super heavy arrow, um, that's a long time in the air to go 50 yards. <laughs> so that's where I've not needed the, the roller uh, yet. Um, but at the same time, my arrow makeup is a uh, day six, 300 spine arrow. I've got um, 150 grain insert in the front, insert, outsert. And then I have the cutthroat 200 grain single bevels up front. I I drank the Kool-Aid deep of the heavy arrow and gave it a shot. And it has just worked wonders for me. So I know... I know guys are on all sorts of the fence when it comes to it. For me, it just it just works. I have put down so many deer. I have watched deer die in front of me as opposed to having to track. I, you know, even with that buck, if I would have used a mechanical, I don't think I would have gotten the result that I got off of that single bevel. I think it punched right through his spine, got right in, did damage to that lung. So when he dropped at 50, he dragged himself down a hill and then he ended up bleeding out and after working hard though. So I was like, I, it's just a, a rock solid setup that I, that I enjoy. I took that out West to Montana. Uh, didn't get a chance to put any elk down with it, but I felt confident that, that same setup was going to work out there. So yeah, that's, uh, that was what I was running. Yeah. Excellent. I mean, if it's working and, uh, you know, you're the kind of like what we talked about earlier, it's like, if you're confident, then, you know, that's, that, that can be half the battle. So, but I really appreciate it. Um, you coming on and love catching up with you and, um, you know, t- talking a little hunting, but, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, your world. So if people want to follow along, if they're like, oh my God, this guy, though, even just the way he describes food, uh, makes me want to hear more, uh, where can they follow along with what you're doing? Gotcha. Yeah. I would love for people to come on over. I, I talk hunting once in a while, but yeah, we, we kind of hang out at the barbecue. We hang out at the kitchen. Um, but yeah, I'm the hunt podcast. You can find me on Apple podcast. You can find me on shoot all the platforms that house that, um, I've got a unique n- enough name. Um, hunt pops up. Uh, I think first, if you put in hunt and it's hunt, a vor. I try to put locavore and hunting together. So that's where I got that name. Um, I'm also a part of the Sportsman's Empire. So if you do need to find more podcasts, um, you could head over to Sportsman's Empire. I've got um, my feed is on there. I'm on Thursdays every other week, uh, bi-weekly because I got a family and I got to make sure I you know keep going to work and keep hanging out with the kids and doing that stuff. So I gotta, I gotta let my hobby be my hobby. So yeah, I'm bi-weekly, but yeah, our big thing right now is I want to start doing some winter dishes. So we're going to be talking more about, you know, crusting up some of our, uh, 
some of our um, our tenderloins. We're going to talk about Wellingtons here. I want to get you know get into really making a good Wellington. That's where you're adding puff pastry to the outside. Uh, I want to do a lot with Warhammers. I want to make Warhammer the new viral cut as opposed to the tomahawk. Love the tomahawk. It's great, but it's just a backstrap with a bone on it. I don't know if anybody told you that. I feel like a conspiracy theorist whenever I say that. <laughs> But anyway, that's my big talk is what can you do with your deer? What can you do with your wild game? And, you know, for the, for waterfowl guys, I want to get into, I want to get into your world. I want to talk more about that. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work right now with wild boar. I've got wild boar bacon that I've made up. And I know that there are naysayers that say it couldn't be done. Well, folks, I'm, I was snacking on bacon, uh, this morning for breakfast and it was all off of a wild boar. And so working with some of that, I had a friend send me bear. That's a new territory that I'm working in is trying to, how can I make bear, uh, still moist and delicious, but yet get to that safe temperature so I don't end up with a parasite. <laughs> so that's the that's the uh, challenge there. But the whole idea of wild game and wild food, if that's up your alley, yeah, come over to Huntivore and we'll, uh, we'll take you along with us. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate it, Nick. Thanks for coming on tonight. Absolutely. Hey, you guys are doing great over here at Bowhunter Chron- Chronicles. I appreciate all the content you guys put out. It's entertaining, it's fun, and you guys really bring uh, a great presence to the hunting world. I know there's a lot of people that get caught up in the, shoot, what we were talking about. They're, they need the big buck, they need the kill, they need they need the likes, they need the clicks, they need all this stuff. And you guys bring that real world, old school feel back to hunting. That it is, it's a fraternity, it's a club, it's a brotherhood that we we come together and we just enjoy the outdoors and we enjoy nature and creation. So thank you for all you guys have been able to do over there. Yeah, it's been a fun ride. So thanks. <laughs>